From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Uterine fibroids are a common problem for women. They usually occur between the ages of 30 and 40, but they can occur at any age. African Americans are more likely to develop fibroids than are white women. Symptoms of fibroids can include heavy menstrual bleeding, pelvic pain or fullness, and a frequent need to use the restroom. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about fibroids and treatment options from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll have a discussion about death and dying. We'll explore how to have those difficult conversations about end of life. And an expert from the USDA joins us to discuss preventing foodborne illnesses. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Fibroids are abnormal growths that develop in or on a woman's uterus. They're typically benign, not cancer. Sometimes fibroids become quite large and cause severe abdominal pain and heavy periods. But in other cases, they're there, they're present, but they don't cause any symptoms. Hmm. According to the National Institutes of Health, up to 80% of women have fibroids by age 50. 80%. Well, that, you know, you've got a four in five chance of having them. <laughs> the NIH reports that more than 200,000 hysterectomies are performed each year due to the symptoms of uterine fibroids. And here to discuss is the Division Chair of Gynecology at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Shannon Lachlan Tomaso. Welcome to the program. It's very nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. You said you could talk about fibroids for hours. Is that true? That is true. Why is it of so much interest to you? Well, I think that fibroids are, one, they're common, as you mentioned, but they're also fairly unique. So each fibroid is a little different, and our patients show up with just a myriad of symptoms. So I feel like I could talk to them, talk about them for hours. Uh, So just so we all understand, when you say fibroid, what do you really mean? Well, fibroids, as you mentioned, grow in the uterine cavity, and they arise from the muscle layer. So they're an abnormal growth within the muscle layer. And they can get large. Some of them stay small. Um, Some grow into the uterine cavity and some grow on the outside of the uterine cavity. So they're actually probably a variety of different kind of fibroids, but we generalize them as this abnormal growth of the uterus. But they are benign. They are benign. Do they ever turn into cancer? That's a little bit of a debate. There is a condition called leiomyosarcoma, which is a cancerous condition of the uterus. It arises in um, a large tumor within the uterine cavity. And so there was some research that indicates maybe there are some types of fibroids that are more at risk for becoming leiomyosarcoma, but they also may just appear as a unique separate tumor. Hmm. Uh, You said there's lots of different kinds of fibroids. Is there a number? How many are are there? We don't know yet. We're Uh just learning about the genetic differences within fibroids now. There are several types that have been found, and they probably are related to how big the fibroids get and what symptoms they cause but we haven't learned everything about them yet. So are fibroids like um, a cancerous tumor in that they have their own genetic makeup? We think there are different types, yes. Mm -hmm. There are about 70% of the fibroids that are removed from the uterus are this one kind of mutation called a MED12 mutation. But there are other fibroids that might be associated with um, a cancerous condition of the kidneys, Mm -hmm. and there are another kind of fibroids that grow very large, and they have a different genetic makeup. They're so common. Uh, Do you have any idea what causes them? We're not completely sure yet. We know that there are stem cells within the uterus, and those stem cells can either turn into normal muscle tissue or they can create a fibroid. 
And we're looking for what triggers that, because that would be a great option for preventing growth of fibroids if we could intervene at that point. Some of the things we know that cause fibroids is you, you basically have to have estrogen and progesterone to cause the fibroids. So they don't occur in women before puberty, and they should not occur after menopause. And obviously, uh, if you've had your ovaries removed, are they less uh, less common? You said that you have to have estrogen and progesterone. So women who have had their ovaries removed for whatever reason, are they less likely to get fibroids? Yes. And in fact, we would consider those women menopausal. And so if they get a fibroid after menopause, that would be more concerning for that leiomyosarcoma we mentioned. Is there any part of the patient population that is more at risk? I mean, obviously, after you start your period, before menopause, Mm -hmm. any other risks in there? Yeah, women, um, African-American women are much more at risk for uterine fibroids and are at risk for symptoms and for them to occur at a younger age. Hmm. So they're seven more times more likely to need their fibroids removed. And as you mentioned, hysterectomy is very common. It's about two to three times more common among African-American women. Also increasing age up until the age of menopause. So women in their 40s are more likely to get it than women in their 20s. And women who haven't had a lot of pregnancies before are more at risk. We also think low vitamin D is a risk factor for fibroids. So low vitamin D, and you said fewer pregnancies. Women who have had more pregnancies are less likely to get fibroids? Correct. And why is it of concern? I mean, do these, uh, there are a lot of women who I presume have fibroids that don't know it, uh, but there are some who have symptoms from their, their, their fibroids, and if they do, what are the symptoms? Well, the most common symptom is heavy menstrual bleeding. So the period can last longer than seven days and sometimes be so heavy that women have to schedule work or activities around their their period. Some don't leave the house during the heaviest days of their bleeding. So they can get very severe. The biggest complication we worry about is anemia. And as you mentioned, some women may not know they have fibroids, and they may not recognize that their periods are heavier than other women. And so they may live with some anemia for some time. Um, Some women get so anemic they need blood transfusions. Biggest complication, anemia. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- so much bleeding that the, the hemoglobin goes down significantly. Yes. That's uh, a more common complication than uh, pain, for example. Yes. We, we tend to see that more than pain. What is it that you finally figure out or the woman finally says something's wrong and comes in? I can imagine if your periods change, you think, well, this is what my periods are going to be like in my 40s. What is it that finally brings them into you? Do the fibroids get so big that they become an issue? Sometimes they do get some pelvic pressure um, or it starts getting so large it starts pressing on other organs. So you can have increase in your urinary frequency, increase in constipation, or some women get fibroids so large they appear pregnant. Hmm. Um, or have to increase their pant size. For bleeding, most women will start to recognize that their bleeding has changed so significantly and mention it to a physician, and the physician will say, well, that is abnormal. So a lot of women will describe kind of a gushing-type bleeding where they literally can't leave the bathroom Mm -hmm. or their house at that time. And what's the natural history? Uh, Once you have a fibroid or fibroids, do they tend to just gradually grow over time, uh, or do they sometimes quit growing, or do they sometimes shrink? All of the above. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is somewhat of a mystery with fibroids. Um, I, the NIH performed a fibroid growth study, and I got to be part of that study. It was very interesting. We followed women, and we actually saw some grow very rapidly. Some stay the same during the entire study, and some shrink spontaneously. So I often liken them to teenagers. They sort of grow through these growth spurts and then kind of stay the same and, and then go through another growth spurt. But not all fibroids grow. Some remain the same, stable, and asymptomatic. And we're actually looking into causes of which fibroids, or if we can tell which fibroids 
are going to stay stable and which fibroids are going to need treatment. Um, can you um, uh, tell with regard to uh, uh, abnormal uh, bleeding, is that the most common cause of abnormal uterine bleeding fibroids as opposed to, let's say, cancer of the uterus? It is more common than cancer of the uterus. In fact, most more hysterectomies are done for fibroids than they are for cancer. Um, it is one of the most common causes, yes. How would you discover that someone has a fibroid if it's mm-hmm. not really causing them trouble? Yeah. A lot of them are found incidentally. So if a woman has an ultrasound for any other reason, they might see a fibroid. And we try not to treat asymptomatic fibroids, actually. So no symptoms, no treatment, because all treatments, including medical therapy, have either side effects or risks. So we really try to individualize the treatment for treating the right fibroid and treating the right symptoms. And sometimes we may even treat one fibroid in the uterus, but not others, if they've been stable. If she has one, is she more likely to have two? It is more common, and that is also more common among African-American women. But as you increase in age, it's more likely to have two than one. Is that the easiest way to diagnose a fibroid is by ultrasound? Yes. So it's non-invasive, it's quick, it's cheap. You don't need to do an MRI or a CT scan, for example. No, we don't need to do that. Um, We usually do, we we call it minimally invasive uh, imaging because it is usually a transvaginal ultrasound. So the probe does go in the vagina. That's the best way to diagnose where the fibroids are. But you can start with an abdominal ultrasound, too. It is the most common um, imaging technique that we use. And because, as you mentioned, it is cheap and fairly easy to get done. Okay, and you can do it either way. Uh, Abdominal, um, so where you put the probe on top of the abdomen, or you can do it through the vagina. Yes, but the through the vagina one is usually more, um, it gives you better size and location of the fibroids. All right, we're talking about fibroids with Mayo Clinic obstetrician and gynecologist, Dr. Shannon Lachlan Tomaso. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll focus on treatment and research and a myth or matter of fact, if you have fibroids, you can't get or stay pregnant. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. We are back talking with Dr. Shannon Lachlan Tomaso, an obstetrician and gynecologist and a division chair in the Department of Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And our topic is fibroids, but we've got a myth or matter of fact. That's right. If you have fibroids, you will be unable to get or stay pregnant. Is that a myth or a fact? Myth, for sure. Why do people think that? Well, fibroids can cause some complications during pregnancy if they're really large. They can cause the baby to be in the breech presentation. Other people think they might be related to early deliveries. But a new study just came out that looked at whether or not they're related to miscarriage, and they didn't find a relationship between Mm. fibroids and miscarriage. Well, that's a good thing, but sometimes they're large enough that causes a problem with the fetus. It can cause, yes. So you said breech position, so the baby doesn't get in the right position because there's not room there in the uterus? That's Fibroids taking up part of the space? That's correct. They kind <laughs> of can get in the position in a lower uterine segment fibroid, low down in the uterus. That baby can kind of be pushed up to the top. Um, but it, those are pretty rare. We actually found that about 11% of women go through pregnancy with fibroids with no issues at all. If you have a fibroid and if it gets removed or, or not, are you more likely to develop a second fibroid? A third, a fourth? I mean, as you go through your 30s, 40s, 50s? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. We do think that they're going to occur again. So even if you get your fibroids treated, there is some recurrence risk. So you talked about the, the fact that some fibroids don't necessarily need to be treated. So which ones do? We always start with the patient's symptoms, and then we look at the imaging. So as you mentioned, we usually start with an ultrasound. And if the patient presents with heavy menstrual bleeding, we'll look specifically if the fibroids 
impacting the uterine cavity. So if it's partially or fully inside the uterine cavity, that fibroid can usually be treated surgically through a fairly minor procedure. We go in through a scope, through the vagina, into the cervix, and take that fibroid out without affecting the rest of the uterus and with no abdominal incisions. Through the vagina, through the cervix, up into the uterus, and you can take it out from the inside? Yes. So that's called a hysteroscopic resection of fibroids. Hysteroscopic. Yes. Because you use a scope. We use a scope, a uterus scope. (laughs) I put that all together. You sure did. (laughs) Why is it that uh, if you have a fibroid, you get a hysterectomy? We actually try to reserve hysterectomy for women who have tried other modalities, even medical therapy, um, and it hasn't worked for them for some reason. We try to delay hysterectomy as long as we can now. There are lots of different treatment options that you can try, and a lot of them are highly effective, so you don't necessarily need a hysterectomy anymore. So what are some of them? Well, for heavy menstrual bleeding, if the fibroid's not completely or partially in the cavity and doesn't need to be removed, you can actually start with medical therapy. So there's non-hormonal options that you just take during your period, and then there's hormonal options that usually you take all through the menstrual cycle. And both try to decrease the amount of bleeding. The progestin-containing IUD actually works Mm -hmm. very well um, for heavy menstrual bleeding and can reduce bleeding by about 70%. The hard part is with fibroids, they're a little bit more at risk of the IUD falling out, Mm. so you have to be cautious about that. Can something like that, though, then reduce the size of the fibroid? If you're introducing progesterone that wasn't there before, does that make the fibroid shrink? It doesn't usually. Okay. Some studies have looked at whether or not it would shrink, and it, not universally. Okay. So the uh, options that you have mentioned from a medical standpoint are medications including hormonal, non-hormonal, and also you talked about an IUD. Mm-hmm. Other options? Yes. For short of surgery? Yes. <laughs> there are lots more options even short of surgery. With fi- large fibroids that cause the bulk symptoms, those symptoms that are like constipation or urinary frequency or the mm-hmm. looking like you're pregnant kind of symptoms, those can actually be addressed also in, uh, along with the bleeding by either uterine artery embolization, focused ultrasound. Okay, uterine artery embolization. Yeah. Can you explain that? Sure. So that's a procedure. It's a radiologic procedure. And they go in through the blood vessels in the groin, and they go around with a catheter, kind of the same way that people get a heart catheter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they put these little tiny gel spheres in there to block embolic agents, to block the blood flow to the fibroids specifically. Wow. And it will decrease the size of the fibroids and decrease symptoms. Because you cut off its blood supply. Exactly. Wow, oh. pretty interesting. It's hardcore. Now, what about <laughs> uh, cryosurgery or cryotherapy where you actually stick a needle into the fibroid and burn it or freeze it? Mm-hmm. Do you use that? That's much less common. That used to be used a lot. But there's something very similar now, which is a radiofrequency ablation of fibroids. And that is done laparoscopically. So you can go in with a small incision surgery, and using ultrasound guidance, they put the little probe inside the fibroid, and they use radiofrequency energy to shrink the fibroids. So you have got a lot of options when it comes yeah. to treating fibroids. And there's one more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear about that one. We do, and we've got time. Lay it on us. <laughs> so that's the focused ultrasound ablation, and that one is MRI-based. And the women actually lay on their abdomen in an MRI with no incisions at all, and they use ultrasound waves to shrink the fibroids. And which, how do you decide what to do? Well, a lot of it comes down to where the fibroids are, how many there are. So we make some individualized decisions based on the symptoms and the location and size of the fibroids. And we have a whole team here at Mayo that reviews the fibroids and the imaging together. And together we work on deciding what's the best treatment option for the patient. 
So if uh, the medications don't work and if the plethora of possibilities that you have just uh, gone through don't work, then surgery, uh, major, you have to remove the uterus, I presume? Well, there's one more surgical option that you don't have to remove the uterus, and that's called myomectomy, which means removal of the fibroids alone. And that's been the gold standard for women who have large fibroids that also still want to get pregnant. But you talked about removing a, a, a fibroid through the, the uh, vagina. Mm-hmm. Is this a different, are you talking about a different kind of operation now? Yes. So there's an abdominal procedure where you can remove those fibroids that grow on the outside of oh. the uterus or are really large. And that can be done either through the laparoscope or through an open incision. So you've got, you can do it from the inside, you can do it from the outside, and if all else fails, you can take out the uterus. Yes. But that's not as desirable anymore, or I guess as it used to be, right? I Correct. mean, why is it important to keep your uterus as long as you can? Well, a lot of women want to keep it for fertility purposes, sure. obviously, but we also have some new research that looks at the uterus. When the uterus is removed, it does affect ovarian function, and so there's a increase in long-term cardiovascular disease risk because it might put women into menopause a little earlier. Well, yeah, but you don't have to remove the ovaries, do you? We're, even when you conserve the ovaries. So when you remove the uterus alone, it can affect the ovarian function even if you've left the ovaries in. Really? Now, <laughs> we didn't know this a decade or two or three ago, did right. we? Well, the studies that came out originally kind of showed an inc- or a uh, lower age at menopause for women who had their uterus out even if they had conserved their ovaries. But the new long-term research is is within the last few years. So if you have your uterus removed, your ovaries don't work as well. Is that what you said? That's what we're thinking, yes, because of the increase in cardiovascular disease down the road. We're almost done, but before we go, if a gal's mom had fibroids... Is she one of your friends' mothers? Yeah, I got a I got a friend. Is she and her are she and her sisters grandchildren more likely to have fibroids? Well, we think that's true, but it's a little hard because fibroids are so common. Mm-hmm. So we haven't seen as much of a correlation if they have a really large fibroid that doesn't always occur in the next generation. Right. I'll let my friend know. Well, <laughs> we have learned a lot about fibroids. Dr. Shannon Lachlan Tommaso, you're fabulous. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Dr. Lachlan Tommaso is a division chair in the Department of Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks again. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss a difficult subject, conversations about death and dying. And later on the program, a recent study on hand washing that produced some very frightening results. Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out Mayo Clinic Radio segments now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams from the Mayo Clinic News Network. It seems what's old is new. The use of mud or wet clay as a topical skin treatment or a poultice is a common practice in some cultures, and the concept of using mud as medicine goes back to earliest times. Now, Mayo Clinic researchers and their collaborators at Arizona State University have found that at least one type of clay may help fight disease-causing bacteria in wounds, including some treatment-resistant bacteria. The findings appear in the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. Dr. Robin Patel says their research shows a certain type of clay can kill some strains of bacteria under laboratory conditions, including bacteria grown as biofilms, which can be particularly challenging to treat. 
Biofilms happen when bacteria attach to surfaces and develop a film or protective coating, making them relatively resistant to antibiotics. They appear in two-thirds of the infections seen by physicians. The study is an important advance in understanding how clays, specifically blue clay from Oregon, have shown medicinal properties. The research is preliminary, and they caution that not all types of clay are beneficial. Some may actually help bacteria grow, so more research is needed. And in other news, back to school tips about healthy snacks. After school, many kids come home ready for some food. How can you be sure the grub they grab is nutritious? Dr. Angela Matke has three tips. The first would be to supply many options. Have lots of options available so your kids are learning to make healthy choices. The second tip is to prep ahead of time. This is going to make them much more likely to choose a healthier snack if they don't have to wash or peel or cut the fruit or vegetable. The third is location. Display choices on the counter or keep them in the fridge. Keep your kids out of the pantry or cupboards where processed foods are stored. That way, they won't make a less nutritious choice. Now, what types of healthy options should you offer? Dr. Matke says to cut up fruits and veggies with some hummus, a piece of fruit with some peanut butter or other nut butter, low-fat cheese or plain yogurt with fruit and granola are other good options for nutritious after-school snacks. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it is inevitable for all of us. It's a difficult thing to discuss, death and dying. And it's not only difficult for patients and their families, it's difficult for healthcare providers, too. A recent article in JAMA Internal Medicine shared one physician's experience of learning how to handle those delicate conversations. The article was titled, Saving a Death When You Cannot Save a Life. I like oh, it. Yeah. It's written by Mayo Clinic Critical Care Specialist, Dr. Michael Wilson. Ah, who's in the studio with us today? Look at that. <laughs> Welcome to the program, Dr. Wilson. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Great to have you here. So uh, I guess any physician has to be concerned at, at one point or another with, with death and dying and a patient who is going through the process. But you seem to have taken a particular interest in death and dying. Yeah, I've, um, I, I guess being in the ICU, uh, it's a place where people are often on life support and it's where oftentimes people are expectedly or unexpectedly facing their own mortality. And so for better or for worse, I get to be involved or privy to a lot of these decisions and a lot of these moments in people's lives. Well, tell us about the story that you shared in that JAMA article. So this was basically the story of one patient who came to the ICU and was quite sick, and she had cancer, which was blocking her intestines, and she really wanted us to do everything that we could to save her life. She was not ready to die. And so we said, well, we can potentially do a scope of your intestines, and but in order to do that, we'll need to put a breathing tube in and put you off to sleep. And potentially, we'll be able to find something that can fix your your illness, and maybe we won't be able to fix your illness. She consented, and so we proceeded. We, we put her off to sleep. We put in a breathing tube and did the scope. And unfortunately, when we did the scope, we we found that her intestine was basically dead, and there would be nothing that we could do to help her. 
Unfortunately, during that course of that procedure, she got very, very sick, and we really weren't able to safely remove the breathing tube. Um, and so she ended up dying. Um, she died a comfortable death. Uh, but unfortunately, she was really never able to say goodbye to her family while she was lucid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like that kind of as a healthcare system, we had stolen her last words or that opportunity to say goodbye uh, with her family. And so that kind of has, I don't know if it's haunted me, but it's always stuck with me. And um, so the purpose of this article, I, I learned about a technique to try to enable patients and families to be able to have this conversation of saying goodbye. And it's, uh, the, the process is called the going off to war talk. So the, the analogy is basically when two parents will have their um, son or daughter go off to war, uh, they hope that their child will come home. And that's the best case scenario is that, that their child will come home. But the worst case scenario is that their child may die in the midst of the war and not come home. So how do you start that off in a medical situation? Yeah, so you're basically saying we're, we're in a difficult spot. We don't know if you're going to live or if you're going to die. And so, so in this moment, before we put in a breathing tube or, you know, potentially put you off to sleep, um, prior to that, we, we would have a conversation. Um, while we're hoping for the best, we also need to prepare for the worst. Um, best case scenario is we put the breathing tube in and, and your loved one will make it through this illness and everything will be fine. Worst case scenario, these may be the last words that you have with your loved one. And so then we, as we prepare to put in the breathing tube, uh, the family and the patient can take a few moments to have a, a conversation, to express love, to express support, um, and, and to hope for the best, but at the same time prepare for the worst. So you're putting in a breathing tube either for some uh, fairly complex procedure or, or for some surgical procedure in general? And it could be for a procedure or it could be because they're just really short of breath and mm. and they have respiratory failure and uh, are needing extra support in order to to keep living. And you're hoping that at some point you'll be able to take that tube out, but you don't know that for sure. Hopefully. And I think that this this all boils down to can we predict who's going to die and, and can we predict who's going to live? And And in large studies and cohorts of lots of different people, we have prediction calculators that can do that. But for individual patients, sometimes we don't know exactly how people's course is going to be. Uh, this individual patient in front of us may actually survive or they may actually die. Let's go back to that woman then that you wrote about. Um, I would say, I mean, if you could project that she may not have wanted to have that conversation because she wasn't ready to die. She wanted to go ahead with this procedure how do you think she would have responded if you would have said something like what you're describing now? Well, um, I think she would have responded well to this. Um, I've done this, maybe had 50 conversations like this mm. since this since this instance with this patient, and nearly universally, patients and families welcome this idea. They like that the doctor is being upfront that this that they're facing their own mortality. They like that we are acknowledging some uncertainty about the exact outcome. 
And I think this is a way for patients to really try to hope for the best, but again, at the same time, preparing for preparing for the worst. You said you've done this some 50 times. Did these conversations ever get any easier for you? Um, I would say uh, the wording and the word choice and the ability to help walk a patient and a family through these conversations does get easier. It's kind of like a skill uh, of like putting in a central line or putting in a breathing tube or some uh, procedure. The more you do, the better you get at it. But but what does not change and what does not get easier is is helping an, a human being in front of you face really difficult circumstances in a very vulnerable state. I wonder if the patient is a medical professional, if that makes any difference. Have you had that circumstance yet? Well, I have. I've treated several physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists. And I, I guess in summary, uh, doctors and nurses are humans too. And when facing their own mortality, they think a little bit differently. It's very individualized. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think physicians, especially ICU physicians, have seen where medical treatment might be quote-unquote futile or not really achieve anything, that you're just prolonging the inevitable. But I've also seen physicians who come to the hospital as patients, and they're willing to undergo a little bit of burden, a little bit of life support, a little bit of time to see, well, if I can make it through this, I'd be happy to go through that burden. I still want to keep living. I think this was a really important article and something that you learned at a relatively young age. And have your, have your colleagues who uh, also work in the ICU pretty much signed on with this technique, followed this technique? Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, Surprisingly, it's rang true with a lot of physicians. Uh, I've received emails from physicians all throughout the entire world um, sharing with me their experiences of stealing a patient's last words, of, of doing a procedure or of treating a patient and trying to solve their issues, but not allowing them the opportunity to say goodbye. And so I, I've, uh, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily universal, but I've, I've received a lot of um, words of saying this, this is a good technique to try and that they were going to try to implement this in their practice. All right, we've been talking about the difficult but necessary conversation about death with Mayo Clinic critical care specialist, Dr. Michael Wilson. Dr. Wilson, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with an expert from the USDA about a recent study on hand washing. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A new study from the U.S. Department of Agriculture found that when it comes to washing our hands before meals, well, we're not doing a very good job. Uh-oh. In a recent observational study, consumers failed to properly clean their hands 97% of the time. Rinsing. (laughs) Not so good. No, rushing through hand washing can lead to cross-contamination of food and other surfaces, resulting in foodborne illnesses. Joining us on the phone to discuss is the Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the USDA, Carmen Rottenberg. Welcome to the program, Ms. Rottenberg. Thanks so much for having me. Carmen, thanks so much. So I, I guess it's fairly clear we're not doing a very good job of washing our hands before we eat. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, washing hands before preparing food and then also uh, washing hands after touching raw meat, which is what we found in a, in a significant number of instances when participants in this study had an opportunity to wash their hands. They did not. Yeah, that 97% of the time number leads me to believe that perhaps I've not done it correctly all of this time. So how do you, how do you perform this study? Uh, so actually, we're, we have a five-year study where we are focusing on the four different food safety behaviors, clean, separate, cook, and chill. Clean meaning do you wash your hands and surfaces before preparing food uh, and while you're preparing to ensure that you're not cross-contaminating. Separating to make sure that you're keeping raw meat and poultry separate from your fresh fruits and vegetables and other ready-to-eat foods. Cook, are you cooking your foods to the proper internal temperature? And then chill, are you safely storing the foods after you have consumed them, after you've served them to your to to your um, household. And so this particular meal preparation experiment focused on the food safety behavior of cook, actually, specifically whether participants were using a food thermometer to check the doneness of the turkey patties and whether the patties were cooked to the recommended uh, internal temperature. Uh, what we found, in fact, is that in addition to not using a food thermometer when they had access to it, in 97% of the time, consumers also didn't wash their hands at points when they should have, meaning they either didn't wash them or didn't wash them effectively before they started preparing the food or uh, the same was true after they touched the raw meat. Um, did they know you were watching them? <laughs> they did know that we were watching them, but they didn't know that we were watching them for food safety behaviors. So the participants in the study were invited to participate in the study um, in order to test new recipes. That's the hook that we used uh-huh. to get them in. And we conducted this experiment in both urban and rural settings. Um, and... We did inform the participants once the study was done that this was actually a food safety study uh, and and not a recipe uh, study. I've got it. I'm very curious, and I think I know the answer, but uh, who fared better, the urban or the rural? It actually didn't make a big difference. Really? Wow. I grew up on the farm, and when I go home, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what was I doing? Yeah. No, it didn't it didn't make as big a difference as I would have expected either. I think a really big takeaway is that consumers don't know the five steps to washing their hands and probably most people wouldn't admit that they don't know how to wash their hands, but it's really important to wet your hands, lather them. Uh, about 80% did not scrub for the 20 seconds that CDC recommends and then rinsing the hands and then drying them on the paper towel. And really critical is after handling raw meat and poultry is to wash the hands before touching anything else in the kitchen. The study showed that the participants went and handled the raw turkey burgers, then they went over to season the turkey burgers with the salt and pepper, and so they had their hands that had been touched the turkey, uh, and then they went to the seasoning containers and, and then contaminated those containers. And it's just important to remember that those those pathogens then can live on the side of the spice containers for the next 33 hours. So you have other unsuspecting family members that go then and touch something after you've touched it with your hands that have been contaminated. Again, that was wet, lather, scrub for 20 seconds, and then dry. Rinse, oh, rinse and dry. So rinse, rinse and dry. Yeah. And then dry on a clean towel. So not dry on a towel that you've had sitting and has been there for a few days. We recommend drying on a paper towel, fresh paper towel, every time that you're throwing away uh, because you need to have a clean towel that you're drying your hands on. Uh, bacteria grow very quickly, both at warm temperatures and also in moist environments. And so if you have a towel that has been used consistently around the kitchen for either wiping down surfaces or, or w- also wiping hands, 
hens before you've washed them, things like that, um, that can get to be a very dangerous breeding ground for bacteria. So we always say keep paper towels next to your sink, grab a paper towel, and then you're, you're wiping them off and you're throwing it away. Does it matter what kind of soap you use? Is antibacterial soap any better than regular? You know, I don't know that CDC has done a whole lot of evaluation in that area, um, although it's definitely something we're interested in as well. Uh, you, you might recall several years ago, many of the um, components in these soaps were are, were no longer permitted for mm-hmm. use mm-hmm. Um, because of some concerns about, you know, creating resistance in humans to certain um, antibiotics. And so there are studies being done there, but I would say that we don't have a recommendation on what kind of soap to use. How common are foodborne illnesses and how serious are they more specifically? Well, food, foodborne illness is, is, is very common in that uh, one in six people each year is likely to come down with, with foodborne illness. Um, and it leads to, you know, over 100,000 hospitalizations a year. So it's serious, very serious. Um, it's particularly difficult for children and for elderly or people who have compromised immune systems uh, because they have a more difficult time fighting the the bacteria. And so, you know, I'm a mother of three children, and that's why hand washing is so important in our household, not only just to prevent foodborne illness, um, but also it's... uh, you know, it's the it's the best way you can prevent yourself from any kind of disease um, or or illness is by washing your hands. So it's so critical to do that, um, especially if you have folks in any of those categories in in your home or who you're serving. Hey, Carmen, I, I just might add to the uh, number of people who have foodborne illnesses: 48 million a year. That's one in six, as you mentioned. 128,000 or so hospitalizations. 3,000 people die every year of foodborne illness. So That's what you right. say, I think, is, is, is really important. And you are convinced, or there's pretty good evidence, that if people did as you recommend, it would significantly cut down on foodborne illnesses. Yes. You know, we have inspectors at the USDA. We have USDA inspectors in meat and poultry plants all around the country inspecting every single carcass for um, contamination to the carcass and also conducting sampling around the plant. Uh, when the product gets the USDA mark of inspection, it means that it is a safe product to consume, but meat and poultry must be cooked to proper internal temperatures in order to keep your family safe. And so when I say being cooked to proper internal temperatures, I also mean that if you have raw product around in your kitchen, any surfaces, the surfaces aren't getting cooked. So they have to be sanitized. They have to be washed. Um, cross-contamination is a big problem when we look at outbreaks. Um, people might be cooking their food, but they've used the same cutting board for their raw meat and poultry that they have for their fresh fruits and vegetables um, without sanitizing it in between. And these are just really critical steps that consumers need to take in their in their kitchens in order to keep themselves and their families safe. Oh, perfect. Great information. We've been talking on the telephone with Carmen Rottenberg, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the USDA, about preventing foodborne illnesses. I think we now know some things we should be doing. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Ms. Rottenberg. Thank you. i got to go wash my hands. That's our program. (laughs) That's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.